PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to this special PTJ podcast where we listen to the 2007 Rothstein debate. Some of you may have read the December 2012 editorial where I reminded the reader that there was a debate about whether or not physical therapists should be in acute care settings. This debate happened in 2007, and the moderator was Dion Jewell, the member of the board of directors. The people who spoke were Anthony Galito and Charles Magistro. I encourage you to look at the December 2012 editorial, which I think may help you understand why we rediscovered this debate and I hope you enjoy listening to it. So here we go. Scott Ward, the president of the APTA at the time, will introduce it, and I will say a few words as editor-in-chief, and then you can listen to the debate. Enjoy. The 2007 Rothstein debate entitled, Should Physical Therapists Practice in Acute Care Settings, will follow. Thank you, Dion, and, and welcome, everybody. It's, it's an honor for me to uh, introduce this second annual Rothstein debate. Uh, this annual debate was established in honor of the uh, Physical Therapy Journal's uh, editor-in-chief emeritus, Dr. Jules Rothstein, a scholar, a writer, and a friend who loved more than anything impassioned debate uh, and dialogue actually on any topic you wanted to debate him about. I, I have a few recollections myself uh, about such debate with Jules, and, and it was, I have to tell you, it was, it was most interesting. My first opportunity to really debate Jules was this. Uh, I listened to Jules talk about some topics, and I have to be honest, I don't even remember what the topic was. But I, I was impressed by him. This is when I was, when I was a few years younger than I am now, and, and I, was, I was a little intimidated by Jules. And I, I, I thought, okay, now I know where he stands on this issue, and I want to make an impression and meet this guy and have him like me. So I walked up to him after something when it appeared he had a few minutes, and I shook his hand and, and said, thank you, Dr. Rothstein, that was wonderful. You know, I totally agree with what you have to say. And I, I launched into a little verbiage about how much I agreed with him and how, how wonderful I thought his uh, dialogue was. <clears throat> and he turned to me and he said, well, you're wrong. And the next thing I knew, he was debating everything he just said that he that he felt very passionate about. And uh, so I guess I found out early on that it didn't matter whether or not he believed in something. He was always willing to debate what he believed in. And I have to admit also that I tested him a few times later, where I think, again, I knew what he believed in. And I asked him, I, I told him, geez, I agree with you again. And he always debated the opposite side. And one day I actually tried that again, and, and he stopped me and he said, you know what? Quit doing that. Tell me what you really think. And we had a wonderful relationship from that point on to a point where I remember at one time I had an idea about a research project. And Jules invited me up to his room in the hotel where there was a little small mini suite offset from his room. And we sat for two and a half hours talking about this and other related projects. And, and from that point on, actually from the very first time I met him, I, find out, I found out what a wonderful gentleman he was but more importantly, how much he really did demand us to think about everything that we believe in. 
and how much he wanted us to challenge that in a very scholarly and impassioned way. So it's now my great pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Rebecca Craig. Now, Scott just told a wonderful story about Jules, and I can say that when I first met Jules, his debate um, would reduce me to tears. Um, he, would, he would passionately discuss the other side. He would never give up, and I would just kind of melt because I can't listen to this anymore. Um, and what he helped me understand was what Scott said, and, and that is that it's so important for us to engage in a passionate discussion but to engage in a discussion about professional issues, about the research in the journal. Um, and you never were in a room with Jules where there wasn't a question. And one of the worst things about presenting or even writing an article is to have no response to it, to have the audience not ask questions, to write an article in the journal and have no one proceed to do research to inform the topic better. Um, and that's really what Jules was all about. And the reason that the journal sponsors this is we certainly hope that the journal itself serves a forum to engage in lively debate. So I'm finished. I'm going to introduce Dion Jewell, who is the moderator of this lively discussion. Dion is an assistant professor at Medical College of Virginia, VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University. Um, she's the former president of the cardiovascular pulmonary section, and she's now an editorial board member. No, she's not. She's not an editorial board member. She's a, <laughs> she's a director, board. More important. God, for a minute there, I thought there was something I'd forgotten to do. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Well, you know, because, because, uh, because paybacks are important, uh, Becky managed to slide up here without much of an introduction of her own, so I'm not going to let her get away that easily. Um, as you may know, um, or should know, uh, Becky was the 36th Mary McMillan lecturer, among other things. She has uh, received the Lucy Blair Service Award, the Canadian Physiotherapy Association's Silver Quill Award. Uh, she has been chair and president of the Section on Research and the Foundation for Physical Therapy Board of Trustees. So. Uh, quite accomplished, and, and we're very much happy to have her as our editor speaking on behalf of the board that I'm really on. <laughs> All right, well, it is my pleasure to introduce our uh, two speakers today. Um, the first, uh, Dr. Tony Delito, is professor and chair at the Department of Physical Therapy, School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences, and vice president for education and research, Centers for Rehab Services at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Delito is chair of the Physical Therapy Journal Steering Committee and is former president of APTA Section on Research. He currently focuses on treatment and research of low back pain and, most recently, the neuroprotective effects of exercise in Parkinson's disease. His honors include the Golden Pen Award, several Stephen J. Rose Awards for clinical research, the Lucy Blair Service Award, and the John H. P. Maley Award. And most recently, he was keynote speaker at the World Confederation for Physical Therapy Conference in Vancouver, British Columbia. Our second speaker is Charles Magistro from Claremont, California. He is a well-known physical therapist leader who has contributed to the development of the physical therapy profession for almost 60 years. You can't tell by looking at him. He served as APTA president from 1973 to 1976 and as the first elected chair of the Foundation for, the physical, for physical Therapy Board of Trustees from 1979 to 1982. He's a founding member of APTA's private practice section, and Mr. Magistro delivered the 22nd Mary McMillan Lecture in 1987. Mr. Magistro is a member of PTJ's steering committee as well. 
Uh, I'm standing before you as moderator in part, I think, because I cut my teeth as a physical therapist in acute care, and it's really my first love uh, as a practice setting. Um, and I can't imagine why anyone wouldn't want to work there. Um, but as an educator now, what I hear from students is that it's the last place they might want to be, uh, and that in their view, perhaps, there isn't any skilled physical therapy going on. So I think that's really the, the central reason we're having this conversation. I have to say I got a bunch of emails and questions. Why are we talking about this? What are they going to say? Um, but I think that's really principally why the topic was chosen. So without further ado, I will pass the mic to Dr. Delito, and we'll get started. Good morning. Um, to remind everyone, this is a debate, so there are no PowerPoint slides. Uh, and I didn't even, I'm not going to read from prepared text. Um, I'm taking the position that we don't belong in acute care. Uh, and I'm going to try to justify that position right now. As you heard Dan speak, uh, I've had the opportunity not just to listen to my own students uh, at the University of Pittsburgh, but I've done numerous commencement addresses over the past six months. And I've been visiting numerous places in the past six months. And I've heard uh, when I talk to students the same sort of thing. Uh, for every one student that is enthusiastic about being in acute care, there's at least 10 who aren't. And the response I hear most of the time, the reason is there isn't skilled care. Most of the time they're, they're in, in the uh, environment, there's not skilled care going on. We, I think, are, um, th it, this is something we can't ignore. Uh, and not just from the student standpoint. I, I, I don't, I don't want to just say it's this, the reason for bringing this up is simply from the student's standpoint. Uh, I think we can have, I think we, we all know and I'm only going to speak from a qualitative standpoint because I promised I wouldn't show you slides, but there's, it's, there's, there's a great deal of difficulty keeping physical therapists in acute care. And we know we see that in our own system, and I know that I've talked to others who have, uh, who, who have systems and, and they have the same sort of problem. And again, uh, the reason most often heard is this disparity between the level of training that we have and the level of skill in the care we're delivering most of the time we're there. Now, I am aware, as aware as anybody, I'm a program director, and I've been through CAPI on numerous occasions. I, I am aware, I'm very well aware of the level of knowledge and skill in the students that we turn out in the area of managing patients in, in acute care. I'm, I'm well aware of that. I think the focus of this conversation, though, should be on this disparity between the level of care, the level of knowledge and skill between the therapists that are in the environment and the degree of skill necessary in most of what they're delivering in care. And I know that sooner or later this conversation is going to get to, well, that doesn't happen in my environment. Okay, and uh, I hope we can get past that because I know everybody uh, who's here, is, it's not our environments, it's always those other environments that this unskilled care is going into. I also just want to spend another uh, short period of time by saying, uh, by acknowledging the fact that I Someone might ask us, why are we picking on acute care? Doesn't this happen in all areas of care? That there's a disparity between, and, and, and there's a, a, a degree of uh, unskilled care going on in all of these areas. My response to that, and, and, and directly to the question of why acute care, is simply this. I spend a, very, a great deal of time working with another vice president in our, in our system on quality improvement. We try to link quality improvement to professional development. We try to look at quality indicators and let that and then and, and uh, in our in our therapists and our students this is how we train our students to we try to look at quality indicators we try to develop processes uh, in our systems in all in all of our environments so that 
we can collect information, collect data, look at that data, and make decisions about professional development as well as make judgments about the quality of care we're delivering and move forward from that and hopefully move forward in a quality improvement initiative. The most difficult environment to do this in is the acute care environment. Part of the reason for that is, from what I hear, is there are too many factors involved. How can we be held accountable to discharge status of the patient when there are so many factors involved? And I keep hearing this all the time, and my response to that is, so that means we're not going to do this? Does that mean we're just going to keep doing what we're doing? And, uh, and I think that should be, I hope, will, be, will become the focus of our conversation this morning. What sorts of initiatives can we put in place to begin to document uh, our, the, the quality of care and the effectiveness of our care in acute care settings? So without further ado, I'm going to turn the microphone over to Charles. Nice to see all of you up at this early hour after that session last night. Uh, can you hear me now? Thank you. I'm going to keep my remarks very short also, at least my opening remarks. I want to give Tony and myself all the room to wiggle that we can have up here. And uh, I'm sure that it'll, we'll do a lot of wiggling, but that'll be okay. Uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say a few things about Jules as well. I will keep those very brief also. My wife and I were having dinner one night in Alexandria years ago with Jules. And it was a lovely dinner, and pretty soon there was a woman at the adjacent table who began coughing, and rather uh, strenuously, I might add. And uh, Jules got up and said, my God, he said, this woman must have something lodged in her throat. And she was a very frail, older, elderly woman, and Jules went over to begin to do a hemlock maneuver on her. And I said, Jules, well, she looks pretty fragile to me, and for heaven's sakes, don't fracture any ribs in this situation. And... Uh, and then the woman was very upset because she explained to him that she was a chronic smoker and uh, she always coughed when she was eating. So that was one of my first introductions with Jules, but there were many more and more pleasant ones after that. Obviously, I, I'm deeply honored to have this opportunity to participate in the Jules Rothstein Forum. Uh, I consider Jules to be a treasured friend and a truly remarkable man. As has been alluded to by both Becky and Tony, uh, he really loved debates. and. Uh, Controversial issues were something that probably the only thing that satiated his, his appetite. Uh, but he, he was interesting when you debated with him because he could flow with the, with the situation and take either side and defend it very, very well. And I'm sure that people who knew him well uh, knew that uh, this was one of his favorite topics. And I, I sincerely believe that he was, if he was here, he would have agreed that this is quite a uh, subject to dialogue about because of the, the controversy that, that surrounds it. Uh, I think it's interesting because many people uh, uh, have come up to me as well and says, Charles, why in hell are we even talking about this? This is the most ridiculous topic to talk about. We don't want to get out of acute care. Uh, why is this coming up? And, and the discussion always turned around that, uh, that it, it's something, and Tony has explained it brilliantly to you, and, 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 and you have to understand that I, one of my joys of being here is to be here with Tony. Uh, he is a, also a very treasured friend, uh, a longtime colleague, and uh, we can take the opposite sides on a lot of things and still go out to dinner tonight and enjoy ourselves. So I, there's a couple of things I want to make it here at the very outset, that I am vehemently opposed to any proposition that would deny physical therapists in any manner, shape, or form from working in a hospital setting. I think that you have to understand that they, we have to verify this assumption 
before we jump into it and throw the baby out with the bathwater. We just cannot afford to do that at this point in time, and you'll soon hear from me why, I believe. As some of you know, there are more than 6,200 hospitals in the United States, and during the course of a given day, there are more than one-half million patients who are occupying beds in these hospitals. Now, during that same course of a day, there are over 800,000 physicians who are wandering these halls seeing patients. And we always talk about how do you want to market physical therapy? Well, I can't think of a better venue than a hospital setting to expand the scope and practice of physical therapy and to do it in a very professional manner, in a manner that will help advance your own role as a physical therapist, but also take the profession with it to new heights that we are capable of achieving. You know, the contact with doctors that you can have at this level is, is unbelievable. And it occurs spontaneously or it can be orchestrated, either way. But it must occur at a level like this. And I like to take great pride in knowing that in a small community like ours, that the level of physical therapy is a highly respected one. I've been in hospitals for 60 years, both in the military sector and in the civilian sector. And I can tell you that it can be an extremely rewarding opportunity for all of you. But I'm reminded of something that I read in Tony's WCPT address to the World Confederation when he said, opportunities are oftentimes disguised in overalls. And that is very true. Aristotle had another word for that. Work is a magic word to transmute base metal into gold. Think about that. Hospitals are a place in you must work to achieve, but the opportunities to do so are unusual. The thing that we have learned recently is that on the positive side of this is the fact that just recently we have learned that physical therapists screening of patients with musculoskeletal conditions has significantly altered the cost of such case management. On the other hand, we must be mindful that third-party payers are continually seeking to negotiate contracts with providers at capitated rates. Now, they do this because they want to acquire their contracts with providers who comply, can provide a group of services. They bundle these services into one enormous contract. And in this way, they can negotiate better rates from their providers, and, and consequently, it perceives at this time to give an advantage to hospital-based practices. Whether this remains so in the future is debatable for a lot of reasons, because there are things on the drawing board now that may suggest that these changes will occur even more drastically in the future. And nobody can deny that the technological changes that have occurred in healthcare have been overwhelming, in, at least that I can remember in the 60 years that I've been around. Uh, things were pretty primitive. We were making our, humidifying our oxygen, for example, in those days by attaching tubes to old IV bottles so that the, the oxygen could be humidified. Many times that was beset with tragedy uh, because sometimes the nurses hooked the wrong tubes up to the wrong bottles and were trying to drown patients. But that's not another matter. But I hope that this forum will do one thing. We have to understand that we have a problem. The problem is not going to resolve itself by postponement. We've been postponing it a long time. So this problem is going to have to be resolved by some decisive action. And unless we can figure out why 80% of our membership 50 years ago were in hospital settings and only 20% are there today, we have a fundamental question to answer, and that's the question for the future. 
And I think the reason for that, there are many reasons, and it'll come out in the course of this debate today, I'm sure. But there has been a migration of physical therapists out of the healthcare, acute healthcare setting, for many reasons. And the reasons are pretty obvious. And a lot of it is economic. And uh, the economics of healthcare are a huge engine, and money drives a lot of things. And this should give you a clue about which where to go. There's an old saying, follow the money. And uh, you should really think about this very seriously because it's doubtful that hospitals will not remain at the epicenter of delivering health care in this country, although things will change. But I think two things that is going to change it even more uh, than technology are research and evidence. And I think there is the situation that are going to change all health care in this country in the future. And I'm surprised at all the healthcare planners that we have in this country and the extent to which they're going to develop healthcare programs that it's right in front of their face. It's like somebody looking for zebras when he has for something to ride when he has a stable full of horses. And if we can come to the conclusion that health plans will eventually evolve to a few things, and I refer to them as the three P's, it'll be the provider, the payer, and the patient. And if those three sectors can be satisfied, we will have health care plans that will be satisfactory. I can't think of anything that is evidence-based that cannot satisfy those three factions. So with that, I'll close for now, and I hope that you will drive Tony and me to the limits uh, to defend our hypotheses of why we think we should be here or not be here. And if we can't provide you with adequate answers, search others who can. Thank you very much. I'm going to begin by uh, asking people in this room, because this is a debate, and I don't plan on standing here for three hours talking to Charles, <laughs> although I'd love to do it. I doubt very much we'll say on this track. We'll probably get on to something else. Uh, so uh, in this room right now, how many are fervently opposed to us being out of acute care settings? Fervently opposed. Great. Great. So you won't have any trouble being going to that microphone, would you? Will you? Great. Great. Okay. Uh, and how many are in favor of us, at least considering being out of acute care settings? Okay, so there's some of you there, too. All right, great. So we should have a debate. We've got the makings of a debate. We've got, we, what we have here is disagreement, <laughs> or presumed disagreement. I would like to start by perhaps uh, asking some questions to both Charles as well as anyone in the audience. I, I listened to Charles say, verify this assumption just before we said, before we throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? And I think the assumption that we're talking about is the disparity between the level of education and skill that we have and the level of care that we're delivering. Um, and I think, that's, that, I, I think that's a fair criticism. I think that's a fair statement. I'm not going to stand up here, though, and try to verify it because I don't have the information. I don't, I do not, all I have is a wealth of information from students and from clinicians that has reached a threshold in my mind that something's wrong in the environment, okay? Usually when that happens to somebody who has a mind like mine, uh, I like to verify this information with actual data, and I think we should do that. But how are we going to do it? That's my first question. How are we going to do it, and who is going to do it, okay? And more importantly, my next two questions, why is it that we don't have an instrument right now that we can begin getting this information. I mean, I know right now that if you put me in an outpatient environment uh, in almost any area of the body, in a musculoskeletal area of the body, I can very, very quickly find instruments to systematically collect data on people in that environment, know about the process of care, 
compare that to a, a standardized process of care that is uh, uh, well-established, has, has an evidence base to it. I can look at our therapists if they're collecting this information, and they are, and I can judge whether or not they're adhering to that standard of care, and I can look at the outcome of the patient, and I can see what our outcomes are for future reference so that if I do put quality improvement uh, initiatives in place in our outpatient settings, I can, I can assess whether or not they're working based on adherence to the process of care that we all agree to is the best process of care, number one, and number two, based on the outcome of the patients, right, which I think are two areas that our payers are interested in. I mean, from the standpoint, and, and, and as managers, we ought to be interested in. Now, I looked before I came here, and I couldn't find this information. Our students have, who go into acute care settings and are forced to do this, we force them to do this in our, in our, in, at the University of Pittsburgh, when we have our students go on a one-year internship, if they're in an acute care setting, they have the same responsibility as the students in the outpatient settings. They have to systematically collect information about patients that are supposed to be relevant to these acute care situations. And it seems as though it's Greek to most of the people working in those situations, what they're trying to do. So that's my, that, those are my four questions, and I'll repeat them again. You know, how do we do it? Who does it? Who should do it? And why, does, why, is there no, why is there no availability of a systematic data collection process? Because I'm going I'm to stick to an assumption that if you don't measure it, you can't assess it. Okay? But we need to really be clear on that. I, I'm, I can't listen to somebody telling me about all the virtues of what they do in acute care, and then when I turn around and ask them, how would I ever know that, I just have to take their word for it. Because the last part of this is, can we be, how secure can we feel in this setting if we don't have this information that I'm asking? How, how, long, how much longer can we exist in this setting? Because whether you guys like it or not, we are becoming expensive help. We are. And we are expensive help in acute care settings. And if you took yourselves out of the position you're in right now and put yourself into a CEO of a hospital and you say to yourself, I've got to get certain things done with these patients, right? And if you look at what therapists are doing in that acute care setting, how can you justify what they're doing at the price they're doing it? And if most of the care is, 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 of a, is being delivered at a skill level that's lower than a person's uh, education and training, then the first thing you're going to do is you're either going to raise the level of skill being delivered, right? Or you're going to lower the level of skill of the person delivering the care. And those are the, I mean, that's just the fact of life that, as I see it. So those are my questions to you. And I, I'm, I'm dying to see somebody get to the microphone here. And I'm glad I see somebody getting to the microphone. Okay, thank you. Well, first of all, Tony, I've been dying to get to the mic. So thank you for the invitation. The, the, uh, I, have, I am on the side that we ought to be in the acute care setting. Uh, that's where I practice. Now, the one issue that I don't think either Tony, you, or Charles discussed that I would love to hear debated or talked about is one of the reasons that I believe students don't feel as excited about the acute care setting as they might is because of some, some kind of historical constraint that seems to be placed upon them. I see acute care as a potentially very exciting practice opportunity. If you think about how medicine practices in acute care hospitals, it's practices. They, they have, I mean, surgeons have general surgery practices that they, they run through hospitals. Physical therapists typically and historically have been employees of the hospital. 
And my suggestion would be that would, at the skill level we are at, and not just new students, but we all are at, that should be insulting and boring and troublesome to all of us. I would suggest that we might want to look at establishing practices in acute care where we market our services. I mean, think Charles made the point that we there are so many practices in hospital settings. Think about the marketing opportunities, the opportunities to meet with physician groups and have opportunities to see patients that many don't get a chance to see in the breadth of opportunity and exposure to uh, diagnoses and, and specialty areas. It's amazing. So I would suggest, as I begin to get a little bit more impassioned about this myself, that we might look at, and, and I would love to hear some words about, setting it up as a different sort of practice setting, where it's actually an acute care practice, not an employment opportunity. And we begin to market it that way. And we also, the other thing that I think is missing in many acute care settings because of how things are set up, is I'm not sure that great, clear, concise examination of patients takes place in many settings. We feel like we go in and set a patient up in bed, and, and if it doesn't work, we lay them down and run to the next room. Well, I'm not quite sure why we don't go in, and like we do with every patient we might in another practice setting, do an examination and decide, number one, whether or not we ought to be seeing them. Just because we're told to go see them doesn't mean we ought to be seeing them. So why not? Why, why can't we get excited about doing an examination? Why can't we do the examination and make the decision for ourselves? All of a sudden, I see these clouds of disappointment beginning to disappear because think of the possibilities in patients that you could see. Talk about the variety and excitement. It's amazing to me. So I, I would like to add one more point to this debate, and that is the practice setting itself rather than the data about outcomes and other things because that's where I see the missing link in most acute care settings. Thank you. Uh, Scott, uh, you've, you've opened the debate up just as I hoped somebody would. In fact, I almost wanted to plant the seed with Dion, but decided I didn't want to orchestrate anything. But from my perspective, the potential for a physical therapist in an acute care center are unlimited. Unlimited. And maybe you better know a little bit more about my background before I start rambling here. Uh, I had the good fortune of being able to combine both private practice and hospital practices. And this occurred somewhat by accident, but also somewhat by design. Uh, when I got out of the service in 1944 or 43, whatever it was, a long time ago, I, I had the good fortune of, well, I was in the service of entering the Navy Hospital Corps, in which I stayed for almost four years. And uh, although I was quite young, I uh, ascended to a very nice first-class rate when I was probably 16 or 17 years old, which is sort of unheard of. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to do that. In the process, when I got out of the Navy, I went to college at Pomona College, a small liberal arts school in Pomona, California. And But to supplement my income, because my ways of living in the Navy had become a little exorbitant for the years that I was here, and I couldn't sustain myself that well in, in when I was at college, I had to take a job. And so what I was qualified to do was get a job in a hospital. And I worked as a surgical technician in this hospital all the time I was in school, uh, when I wasn't in class or on weekends, wherever I could work. I made connections with a number of doctors who I worked with who really appreciated what I had learned in the Navy. And I guess you could almost classify me in those days as a physician assistant because I was trained to go aboard a ship without a doctor and uh, was totally responsible for the lives of some 40 men. Uh, you call, talk about direct access. That's about as direct as you can get, okay? Uh, but nevertheless, it was an extraordinary experience. 
and it's one that I wish others could have taken part of because your lives as physical therapists would have been uh, so much better and so much easier for you. Hospitals are a strange organization. I was privileged once to take care of Peter Drucker, the outstanding business management guru. And Peter always used to say to me, Charles, I don't know how you work in an organization like this. It's got so many heads, it doesn't know who's running the show. And he's right. Uh, doctors, hospital administrators, patients, everybody else. So I was fortunate enough when I got out of PT school in 1950, there were what, maybe 21 schools of physical therapy at that time, 4,000 members of APTA. It was an open Aura. I went into a small community, worked in a small children's hospital, uh, who taking care of post-polio patients. Uh, I was there for four years, and pretty soon I was the chief cook and bottle washer, and I was doing everything in that hospital, and then started working, seeing patients, because the doctors for whom I had worked with in that hospital recognized that, gee, Charles, this is an excellent opportunity for you to see this patient for me, for you to see that patient for me, but pretty soon I was seeing more patients as an outpatient basis than I was seeing at the hospital, and I had to make a decision. Where do I go? At that point in time, there was a law in California referred to as Hilburton, and it was a law to finance hospital construction, but in order to do so, you had to assure Hilburton funding that you would place a physical therapy service in that hospital, whether it was a new hospital or you were contemplating an addition. So the doctors naturally came to me and said, Charles, here is a golden opportunity for you. Would you be kind enough to consider setting your practice up here in this hospital? The radiologist contacted me and said, Charles, we'll construct a contract just like we have for you, and you should work here. So when Scott brings up this talk about maybe congealing all of our efforts as a group practice in a hospital. It's exciting as hell. You know why? Because you can then get into this organization with a group of PTs. If you need a specialist in back care, you can take one onto your staff. If you need someone in cardiorespiratory, you can take somebody like that. And pretty soon, you're just like the radiologist. And God didn't make all this money in the world just for radiologists and doctors, you know. Uh, well, so the discouraging part of this, folks, is when you negotiate a contract, you better be prepared to provide a service. And there's nothing better in this world to excite people than to incent them. Incent them. Give them an opportunity to grow. And if you can't grow in a situation like this, you'll never grow in any situation. You will not, because the opportunities are so abundant. Think of what you can do. You can create neonatal programs. You can create postpartum programs. You can create scoliosis clinics. You can create satellites. Our hospital ended up with seven satellites who are seeing now contributing 40% of our patients to those satellites. 70% of our patients were outpatients. And that's unheard of in a hospital-based practice. Think about it. And today, those conditions, and I've been gone for almost 20 years, still prevail. And they're not under a contractual arrangement now. They are on a strictly master-servant relationship. But it's a good relationship because the scale and the the tenor of things have been set and set admirably. So I think if somebody were to ask me what would be the most wonderful thing for PTs in the future, I would say group practices in hospitals. And let's spend APTA a lot of money working with AHA, working with others to build this congenial relationship that we should have. And we would forget about a lot of things that we're confronting right now 
to have this profession of ours survive because I don't know a small community where physical therapy has a better reputation than it does in Pomona, California, and it's a great place to work, and it's a great place. And this department, before I had left it, had seen in excess of one million patients. So i got news for you folks. There's a lot to do out there, and all of you are armed with the ability to do it. The DRGs provide you with more incentive than you will ever imagine. If you really want up to roll your sleeves and go to work, because there are ways, clever ways, that you can work through this to the benefit of the hospital, the patient, and the doctor. Thank you. Hello, I'm Debbie from Jacksonville, Florida, and I'm on the fervent side of believing that physical therapists have a place in acute care. I have worked in acute care both clinically and administratively for almost 30 years. And what I have seen over those years is that it, the question really to me needs to become, how do we help academics um, change the belief structure of their students that there is not a place in acute care, and how do we help leadership within hospitals elevate the practice of physical therapy in acute care? Um, in my own environment, I have seen over the course of years, we have moved from uh, being the, the department that you call when you need a bedside commode or you need to get a patient out of bed to being colleagues with our physicians. We have um, recently had the opportunity to, have, to experience uh, doing physical therapy for transplant patients. And one of our transplant surgeons, <laughs> excuse me, heart transplant, came to us and said, you are not being aggressive enough with these patients in the hospital. If you do not rehabilitate them prior to their having the heart transplant, they'll be taken off the list and they won't get their heart transplant and these patients will die. Now, I can't think of any more uh, validation of why a physical therapist has a place in an acute care facility. But I think it's going to be um, important for each and every one of us to um, make that people aware of that as well as to elevate our own practice. The other situation that I'm concerned about is that we compare ourselves to outpatient practice. We use the same um, standards to evaluate the practice when indeed that's not the same. Our assessment skills are more necessary in acute care. You must assimilate numerous amounts of medical data. You must consistently and constantly reassess and assess your patient while the treatment is going on. You must be a discharge planner. You must be able to make recommendations for discharge planning. It isn't in whether or not the, you have alleviated the problem, the physical problem. It's in moving the patient to the next level of care. Thank you. Hi. If I may, I'd like to respond. Um, first of all, uh, I would like to, I'd like to respond to two points. First is the, uh, and you may want to say at the microphone, <laughs> because this is a debate. You don't get to, you don't get to hit and run. <laughs> First off, uh, when I would like to, I would like to discuss the belief structure and your apparent um, uh, concern that it's coming from academics. My belief, uh, my experience with students is that they don't achieve this belief structure until they've been exposed in the clinic. It's not coming from us. My faculty uh, has been very, very careful about keeping me away from students while I was trying to formulate the thoughts. <laughs> Of having, of having, that I needed to have to take this position in having this debate. And I hope you all understand that I'm taking a position because I'm, I'm supposed to take a position. <laughs> uh, although, you know, you, you can try to get out of me how I really feel about it later on. 
So, so I, I, that's the crux of the issue. They're not getting the, 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 the belief structure, as you put it, is not coming, I don't believe, from academics. I think we're, we're doing our job and covering that area very, very well. The second issue is um, I agree with you totally that uh, an inpatient therapist should not be judged by, by an outpatient therapist's standards. My question back to you is, well, then what standards are they to be gauged on? Why aren't they being done in a systematic manner? And why isn't it done in a currency that, I, that, that's, that we can look across acute care settings with? Now, I, I, I understand. I, I'm dying for somebody to stand up and tell me about this is all in the documentation because it isn't. Uh, and I'll tell you why. We have, the most, we have the best system in the country to do this with. We are The University of Pittsburgh Medical Center is a mammoth, giant structure that went out and merged with every hospital in the, in the community right now. We're the only game in town. With the, what used to be seven acute care hospitals is now, are now under one system. And I guarantee you, we still can't collect data in our acute care settings across those hospitals and combine it together. In other words, the currency is different, even if we wanted to with what's being done right now. So I'm back to this issue of potential versus what's reality and what's there, and what do we need to do to at least, I'm not saying we have to achieve our full potential. I'm saying we have to get to a point where there's at least some movement toward that, and who's going to move us toward that? That's my question back to you. Now, since I couldn't do a hit and run, um, I'd like the opportunity to respond to both of those. The, the first um, item about um, academics is preparing their students to not have this belief structure. I think part of the problem arises not in that they're not prepared and not that academicians are not um, promoting acute care. I think the skill set that is required in acute care is at a higher level than students are prepared to function in when they come into an acute care setting. So when they come in, their perception is they're walking patients, they're sitting patients up, when that is not really what is occurring. Their clinical instructor who is with them is doing the high-level um, assimilation of medical and diagnostic data. Their clinical instructor is doing the high-level function of assessing a patient who is medically unstable or surgically unstable while still mobilizing them. Their clinical instructor is doing the work of discharge planning. So the student is doing the technical work. Yes, they're the ones who are standing the patient, walking the patient, but they're not functioning in that higher domain of assessment and of planning. So I think we have to begin to to communicate that to students who may not yet be at an intuitive level of practice or at a skill level um, that they just simply can't reach because they are students. They haven't had the experience and they haven't had the exposure. So I think when we go back to their academic preparation, that has to be integrated into their teaching, that you're going to go into acute care facilities. You're going to appear to be a technician in many instances. But here's the domains that we're working in that you may or may not have an opportunity to practice in until you're out in the field gaining experience. The second issue, which is where's the data and why can't we support what we're doing? I do believe that in many, many acute care facilities, our training and our skill level is being utilized. However, it's not being utilized with the ability to measure it against the common measures that we have now. For instance, a major measure in our organization is, this, is, is uh, length of stay. And the belief is, is that physical therapy impacts that length of stay. And it's not whether or not the patient's uh, hip range of motion is satisfactory. It's whether the patient can do functional mobility. 
so that the patient can be discharged home or the patient can be discharged to the next level of care. So the outcome measure is not necessarily related to the objective measurements of what physical therapy is used to measuring, but it's in, did you do what you needed to do from a functional mobility standpoint to get that patient out of the hospital to the next level of care? Did you not harm the patient in beginning to mobilize them? So I think there's different outcome measurements that have to occur before we can say that we aren't using the training that we were given. I, I said, Mike, um, <laughs> my, my first uh, response to the first part um, is, um, why are you not holding the, the academic program's feet to the fire for sending you students ill prepared? That's my first. And, and I say that very, very, you know, I, I mean, believe me, I'm an academic program director, and I hear all the time about how our students are prepared or they're not prepared and so forth. Um, they're always... Uh, you have to get over the thing as an academic program director of, well, of what seems to be a schizophrenic kind of uh, relationship you have with your clinic, clinical people where when CAPTI's around or when everybody else is around, they're all saying how wonderful your students are, but then around coffee they're saying, boy, they just don't get it when they're coming here. That, if that disparity is great, then my suggestion is that that, that needs to be addressed. And I, believe me, that has been addressed with us on numerous occasions. Uh, I'm not sure that solves the issue because I it, it, because I I still believe that there's there are plenty of practicing therapists who are leaving for the same reason. Okay, now now my second issue okay has to do with you seem to know what the data should be. Mm-hmm. Why is it not being collected on a systematic basis? I can tell you flat out, our students go to acute care settings, and for four years now, five years now, we have one year internships going on with students in acute care settings. All of the students go through this process of doing what you just did, telling me what the data should be. And they all collect the data. And they do it across multiple acute care settings. You can't tell me there isn't a common data set that can be systematically collected, collated, and compared to things like length of stay to see if there really is a difference. Because, you know, you're going to have, this is just the power of having the data. Okay? I don't know how. Anybody can even think about doing quality improvement initiatives if you don't collect the data. That's my point. So those are my two issues. Um, do you want to respond? To the first one, I don't think, it is not my opinion, that the academic institutions are not adequately preparing their students. This is not a criticism of their academic preparation. Well, I would disagree with you on that. Oh, right. But let me um, <laughs> take this a little further. Okay. What I believe is happening is that the practice expectation in an acute care hospital is done correctly. It requires therapists who have experience and knowledge and more expertise in the assessment and the evaluation of patients that students simply cannot get in their short academic training. I think it it, it is that whole process of how you take a novice to an expert. And I think they simply are not there yet. And I I think what it leads to, because of the inadequacy simply by lack of experience, is that they believe it's a technical environment in which they're just simply being used as a lift team versus understanding the depth and the breadth of what is occurring from the clinical instructor. I think on the other one about the data collection, you're correct. I think there are facilities throughout the United States who have their own performance improvement programs in which internally within their departments are collecting this data, measuring this data, changing their practice based on this data. However, it's not being published, it's not being assimilated throughout the United States, and it's not getting out there into the literature. 
but I think it's a Kermit. Okay, um, you're you're relieved. Thank you. <laughs> I, I may be but, back. But, but, I, but um, one of your topics that, that I hope we do get to again is the clinical education component because I do think that's an important component that, and we haven't finished yet. But we have to get to some. There's a big line behind you, and I just was past the a note by our moderator to get to the next person. So let's get, to the, let's get to the next person. Holly sent us. I'm from Maryland, and I'm actually going to start with a point that I didn't come up here to discuss. But unfortunately, um, I just have to deal with it. I actually wrote a letter to the editor probably 15 years ago um, dealing with um, physical therapy environments or practice environments. And in that letter, I said I felt it was time to move beyond academicians, clinicians. I think our field has matured to a point where all physical therapists, we operate in very diverse environments, and I'm just really tired of hearing, and I don't, I'm not suggesting this happened this morning as much as you brought it up to the forefront for me, of hearing what the academics should do, what the clinicians should do. It's time to put that to bed. Um, we have hand therapists. We have infant therapists. We have all kinds of very specialized physical therapists. And having been an academic, um, I certainly can understand that environment. I see the pluses of interactions with students. But those same interactions can be modified and refined in a clinical environment. So I think we can move on. I think it's a matter of communication, which is getting information back to the school about issues related to students and vice versa. Having said that, and that's not part of the debate, um, let me say the other three things I wanted to say quickly. One is, to follow up on uh, Scott Ward's comment and Charles Magistro's, I know of um, at least two pediatric private practice settings that provide consultation and intervention services to hospitals, to their special care nurseries. So I think that's another um, example of the model that you described. And I'll take it one step further, and that is my, my practice area is pediatrics. I'm not an expert in other areas. I did treat adults in acute care early in my career, but I can't speak for the field. What I can say that in pediatrics from the newborn nursery up through um, childhood, there are well, literally, there was an entire file drawer full of assessments in my academic setting that I left behind. So there are very sophisticated assessments available in that practice setting um, in order to follow and to document outcomes. I think those exist in other specialty practice settings. But I think to, ha to think that one can have, and I don't think you're suggesting that, one assessment that can systemize the data across all the practice settings, I think would be um, a big step. Not impossible, but if one looks at those microenvironments, those already exist. All right, those are my two main points. I want to finish with a clinical vignette that I think um, includes several of the things we've talked about this morning. I took a new job in a, in a new physical therapy setting where they provided Saturday care to patients who were um, deemed as needing it the most. And so I dutifully did my Saturday rotations. I don't know about you, but I don't particularly like working on Saturday, but... That's what it is. That's what we did. And then finally I had a patient who really needed work on Saturday. She was a 40-year-old with a metabolic problem. She had been born with this. She was currently in a coma. And I requested that she have exercises for, the, for Saturday. And I was told that she couldn't be put on the Saturday list because she only needed passive range of motion. And I was just astonished. In my career, I had never heard that before. 
And this person and I had a discussion. She ultimately was put on the weekend list. Um, but I would say to you that the physical therapist, in this case I was working with a student from BU and so could model these behaviors, often took the initiative in many of the transitions in her care. So, for example, we suggested that she have a clock on the wall of her cubicle in the intensive care unit so she would know what time it is during the day. That was a big innovation. Um, we also took the initiative to, to elicit uh, the beginnings of active rolling. The point is, those early passive experiences we had with this patient turned out to be part of um, an important regime that finally culminated in her walking out of the hospital without any gate aids. So I will we'll conclude by saying I think there's an important role for physical therapists in acute care. I think often the behaviors that we model for students influence their attitudes about acute care. And I think we have a lot of power to, if you will, refine and change that. And I would welcome feedback from academic settings in terms of how we can do that better. Thank you. The discrepancies I'm hearing between academia and, and the clinical setting is an issue that's related to this. It's related to so many issues that our profession is facing is unbelievable. But let me get back to this. When I left school, I was about as poorly prepared to be entering any practice arena than you can ever imagine. Okay, had it not been for my service in the Navy, I would have been dismembered uh, in every respect. Nevertheless, what I was prepared to do was roll up my sleeves and go to work. Okay, so I did go to work. And, and the first thing I realized is that I was up in a room once uh, treating a woman who was recovering from a stroke. And I just left the children's hospital, so I wasn't accustomed to older people, except what I had done in my clinical training. But while I was in that room, the stench was horrible. There was a patient in the next bed who had a sacral decubitus that had to be out of this world. And so I said to the attending physician that day, I said, Dr. Jacobs, do you mind if we take this woman down to the department and maybe clean this mess up? Because it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Do you know what emanated from that? A wound care program that now attracts 20% of our patient load at that hospital, okay? The same thing prevails in the emergency department. We had established the service in the emergency department of our hospital, and I was gratified to see today that there is a program going on at this meeting from Indianapolis, as I remember, being presented on the physical therapist's role in emergency departments. How did this evolve? Well, fortunately, our department was located right next to the emergency department, so when something would arise, we would be called out to say, Charles, can you give us some help to teach this patient how to walk on crutches? He's a motor moron and is really having difficulties with this. So we would get in and do that. And, but what was the evolution of that? The evolution of that was that, you know, you can treat these ankles that are badly sprained and you can treat them early on. As a result, we were doing all sorts of things in that emergency room. We had a physical therapist there every day, on call sometimes, scheduled at hard hours sometimes. The other thing your previous speaker was relating to was the fact that you know, hours of service, days of service. Why, this is unbelievable. What profession only works till 4 o'clock in the afternoon and then goes home? <laughs> what profession works in hospitals today at the horrible rates that are being charged there and says we don't work on weekends? You want to advance a practice, that's the way you do it. You work until the doctors go home at night because if they call you late in the afternoon and they want to refer a patient to you, and you say to that doctor, sorry doctor, we close at 3 o'clock. That doctor's going to say to himself, what's going on here? I thought these people were professional. So you get in there and work. 
when the work is needed to be done. And this whole business that we've been struggling with for years, there's a great deal of difference between service and servitude. And we have to make sure we understand that differential and understand it soon. And once we learn it, we will be compensated for our services in the manner that we should be compensated for them. So I think that physical therapists today can be the quarterbacks in hospital to direct the care that has to be directed to a variety of people to expedite their discharge, to save the hospital enormous amounts of money, and to have them be compliant with all the nasty standards that are being propagated by Medicare and other third-party payers. I'm Diane Jetty, and I'm from the University of Vermont. And like Dion, I cut my teeth on acute care, and it was kind of my first love. But the point that Tony made early on, and I'm a little nervous debating with these two gentlemen, that they know more a lot, a lot more than I do. But the point that you made initially, Tony, was about the fact that our students are not practicing at the level in which we may educate them. And I would argue that practice is what we make it. And it's only our fault that we are not practicing at the level at which we've been educated. Exactly. Thank you. And I, I'm just, I want to give you just a couple of brief examples. Teaching um, uh, continuing education in the cardiovascular pulmonary area with my good colleagues, um, Scott Irwin and Cindy Zadai. And I wish you were here because I know she'd be jumping up and down to get to the mic. Um, but we heard clinicians, when we talked about increasing oxygen, when our patients' oxygenation was dropping, as we were trying to improve their conditioning and their endurance, we can't touch the oxygen. We heard people from our students at um, our institution that students were told they didn't need a stethoscope. Mm -hmm. So we have done this to ourselves. And then students think that we're just in rarefied air in academia and we're teaching them stuff that nobody really does. Other things that our students tell us is, oh, respiratory therapy does that. We don't need to do that. Oh, the nurses do that. So I would argue that we are the only profession that can integrate pathology, lack of nutrition for some of our very seriously ill patients, deconditioning, and integrate all that information, understand the physiological response to exercise, and give the appropriate exercise to patients to allow them then to move to the next level of care. And that also our decision is to help others decide where those patients need to be. Are they capable of going home? Is their home environment safe? Are they needing um, uh, sniff care? Are they needing inpatient rehab? And that is a skill that we can offer. I don't know what the measurements are, Tony. I wish I did. And if you can tell me what some of the measurements you think, I'd be more than happy to work on some kind of measurement tool because I totally agree with you on that account, and I can't. I don't have an answer for that. I, I have to pick up on that because um, I, like, I love the clapping that goes on. I really do. I mean, it's, it's amazing because we talk as though we're the ones we have to convince. We have to convince ourselves. We wouldn't need data if we don't, all we had to do is convince ourselves because we seem to be quite satisfied with the anecdotes that go on, which are, I, and again, I don't want to minimize that. I mean, I can give you that some of the most satisfying things that have ever happened to me in my career aren't the results of research studies I've done. They're results of, of things that have happened to me with patients that I could share with people. The issue I'm, I'm trying to deal with here is the measurement issue. Look, at, look back over here, okay? There's something missing. Look, there's something missing in the, in the name up there. Does anyone remember Jules's middle name? Do you remember his middle initial? It was M. What did the M stand for? Stand for measurement. <laughs> That's what it stood for. Gary, I stole that from Gary Soderberg. Gary Soderberg said that in his, uh, in his Macmillan address. 
Guys, you know, it is imperative to measure these things that you're talking about. It's especially imperative if, if the impact of physical therapy and acute care were so great that everybody would look at it and say, yeah, God, we're there without question, it's needed, okay? Such as a trauma surgeon in a, in a level three trauma center. They don't need data. But I think what we're saying right now is our impact is there, but you know, it's, and the only way we can document it is with these anecdotes, how much longer are we going to last? That's my question. And the measurements, can, you, can I tell you the measurements? I used to feel guilty that I couldn't. But you know what? You guys that are in the settings, that's your job. I don't know how you're getting by it. I don't know how you can judge what your practice is without getting the data, getting the measurements. I just, that, that's the key component here. I didn't mean to shut you up. I was no, no, I, I, being prepared. I, I need to be shut up. Okay. Well, maybe I did then. I'm Becky McKnight. I, I am a PTA program coordinator, and I also do practice in an acute care setting in a rural hospital in southwest Missouri. And actually, I was very appreciative to hear Diane's um, comments because as I was coming up, one of the thoughts that I can't, was coming to my mind is um, being involved on the acute care listserv, it seems to me there's a huge disparity in what is actually occurring in physical therapy across the country. And, and from my personal experiences in the hospitals um, in the, the southwest Missouri rural area is that um, a large majority of the physical therapists are not practicing as, as most of us in this room would like to see that practice occurring. And so it's kind of nice to hear that, gosh, it's just not southwest Missouri. So um, there, my, question, you know, my question to the group is, you know, what do we do? When, we, when you look at some of the statistics that were quoted earlier, the percentage of a profession that used to be in acute care setting versus now, and, and, you know, a lot of my questions come up with, well, how did the DRGs and the financial um, components impact where we moved? And, and I still have some questions on some of the influence that we have in our um, educational setting that might be um, skewing our students' perceptions of the acute care setting. There's a lot of things that that, um, that could be impacting that. Um, but back to the outcomes. Uh, sorry, I'm with you. I don't have the answers. But I but I think we need to remember some of the uh, issues that make that question more complex, and that we can't just. I, I don't think it's as simple. Um, what kind of outcome measure should we be looking at? We're talking about. So a lot of our patients have very complex issues. We're talking about a setting where it's not just physical therapy. It's how we work with other health care providers. So, yes, we have a very important role in that, but the complexity of what is going on with the physician and the nurse and the respiratory therapist and, and, and the dietitian and how we work together. And so I think that's where some of the um, difficulty comes with determining um, how, how physical therapy impacts that and what outcome measures that we should be using. So, I, again, I have more questions than answers, but I would like, to, like for us not to simply look at length of stay because length of stay very, very seldom has anything to do with physical therapy these days. Mostly length of stay has to do with medical stability and where the money is coming from. So I, I would like us to kind of move away from that being one of the outcome indicators or huge outcome indicator that we, that we consider with um, physical therapy outcomes. I believe there is a definite relationship between money and practice, okay? And unfortunately, too many of us in this room, not in this room, but in our membership, pardon me, recognize that either by design or by accident, you have become part of an entrepreneurial profession. 
and you must come to that realization at some point in your lives. You're not necessarily dietitians. You're not even occupational therapists. You're in a profession that can be emulated and by others, can be copied by others, and will be copied by others because you provide a very valuable service to people. You're still one of the few professions that touches people, has a close relationship with them, and you can do strange things with those tactile senses and other things that you have at your disposal. But getting back to the money issue, I think the money issue is the thing that drove us to the situation that we are in today. And I, it drove us for one particular reason. When people came out of the service and were returned to practice, they, I took my first job at $250 a month. Okay, they gave me lunch, which was a really a compliment. But by the same token, that's what I got paid. Now, I couldn't survive. I had a wife and a small child on the way at that time, and I couldn't survive on that $250 a month. So what did I do? Survival of the fittest, you go out and do things. But what happened in that era? A lot of people went into private practice. And why did they do it? For the very same reason that I did. Don't let them kid you. The motivation is survival. And that's what we did. But the hospitals were foolish. They were very foolish. They let competent, well-tenured clinicians leave their practices because they weren't willing to compensate them. And this is why I was saying that I believe that the answer to the problem is partly to incent physical therapists. And I don't mean... In a, in a pejorative sense, please. I mean it in a very positive sense. And you have to have a real incentive in what you're doing and why you're doing it. Uh, above and beyond, I like to take care of little kids, you know. And that's fine. And that's the, the, the comment you hear all the time. But I, I'm convinced that we have a great deal to offer in this situation. And I believe we should be exploring. Rather than trying to figure out here today whether we should stay, I think we should be talking about how can we augment our role in hospitals. And I agree with the person who said that we are responsible for what we do and we are the ones that should be developing these things because we are trained to do that and we should be taking advantage of the situations that are out there. That's all I'm saying. Good morning. Morning. Tim Lyons uh, from currently Aurora East Texas uh, area, but previously from the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. And um, where I would really like to go with this, and several of my previous colleagues have already brought this up, and that in any good wheel, stable wheel. There's the hub, the most important part, and then there's a variety of things that impact that hub. And economics is one of them, Charles. Um, I don't think academics is a big one. Clinical instruction is a big one. But the hub of that wheel that, that impacts everything is every single one of us practicing in acute care. And so going back to practice models, it can be any practice model. It can be a group practice, Dr. Ward, and I'm very supportive of that. I think it can still be an employee of a facility. Physicians are going back to being employees of physicians, uh, facilities in some areas now in acute care. But the crux of that is are we in control of our practice as physical therapists, practicing autonomously, making the appropriate decisions, being advocates for those decisions and supporting those decisions and not succumbing to what administration is telling us to do or doctors are telling us to do. It's autonomous practice in acute care settings that we have to get back to. And that's the responsibility of every single one of us. For those students that are in the room, I would challenge you that when you go into a clinical environment like that and you don't see the practice that you kind of envisioned as you came out of academics, I would challenge you to talk to that that clinic, to talk to that clinic director and say, hey, this is what I learned, this is what I see you doing, you know, where are we going, how can we compromise here? Debate is not about what is said, it's about how we say it in a challenge, so it's not in a challenging manner. So I would encourage every single one of you to take the responsibility in the acute care setting. I, in my previous life, was an administrator 
of a 550-bed tertiary facility, completely responsible for the entire ortho-neuro product line. And the reason I took that position is it gave me the opportunity to work together with all the other professions in that area, physicians, nurses, labs, so forth and so on, to truly develop the teamwork that puts the physical therapist in that autonomous position. And I can tell you that I had people wanting to go into that orthopedic neurological line because it's about developing relationships. They had the opportunity to develop relationships with physicians, nurses, and they were the go-to person for discharge criteria, for what is the next level of care, for what do we need to do with this patient. So it was professional decision-making. I think that's what every one of us wants to be in and wants to be doing in that environment. So, Tony, to try to answer some of your questions. One, I think it's a variety of things. I think we all have to take the responsibility to practice autonomously. Two, I think we need more leaders in healthcare in leadership positions that have responsibility outside the physical therapy department or rehabilitation department so that we can set up a model and reinforce a model to be able to move in that direction. Three, we have to show that some of these outcome measures that I do believe are appropriate link to stay, not in itself, but link to stay. Recurrent admissions, all the things that are currently being looked at that, that talk about reimbursement in that area are not portrayed as coming from the physical therapist. We don't say we're responsible for making that decision. I can tell you in my environment, it wasn't the case managers because they were sitting in a room doing what the doctor said, doing this, being scribes, writing it down, getting it out, you know. They weren't making the decisions. It wasn't the occupational therapist. It wasn't the nurses. The therapists were really acting as case managers, but we have to be advocates for our patients and say, we have, that, we have that expertise. We're the ones that said they need to go this next level of care, that decrease the recurrent, that decrease the length of stay. We have to tout ourselves as that person, and we do not do that. We quietly do our job and do a great job. So those measures that are out there that we're currently measuring but not showing the results we want is because they're not attached to the physical therapist being responsible for making some of those decisions and being an advocate in that area. So I think it's a great place to work. It's a very needed place to work, especially in the rural to East Texas area and all rural areas. There are not physiatrists. Patients would go home with medications and sit there, as far as physicians were concerned, if there was not somebody making functional recommendations and being advocates for that. It has to stay. We have to change the model, and every single one of us has to take the responsibility for that. I, I, Do I have I, to sit down? I don't, no, no, I think you can sit. I, I, I think the, um, uh, I don't argue with the model issue. I, I grew up in a time when uh, it wasn't unusual to see people do what Charles did. Uh, in fact, I can tell you, uh, most of the acute care hospitals that I was exposed to in Buffalo, New York, when I was a when I was a student, were run by private practitioners who contracted the service to the hospital. Okay, and uh, and they were they were great experiences. Now there were a lot of differences, a lot of other differences other than the model in those days. Um, I, I don't want to deny that. The question I have is, um, is the model adequate? Is, change, is going in with a different model adequate in this day and age? And if it is, um, how do we do it? And to what extent do we need, other than our anecdotes, you know, data that says we can have an impact? Uh, I, I see this as being critically important because um, uh, hospitals want to see this. You know, I, when you go into a model situation that you're talking about, usually, typically these kind of things are win-wins. They have to be win -win. That's how you... That's how you get it across. That's how you become a, a partner, if you will, you know, in some way, shape, or form. And I, I, I am sensitive, as every, anyone is, to the issue of these things are elusive. They may be elusive. And my sense of urgency may be a little bit higher than others in the sense that I think it takes more than just changing the model. I think you have to have the data. I think you have to have the data, or at least you have to have the ability to get it. Now, there's, I, I want to finish with one more thing. 
we have a propensity in this field of not wanting the data. We'd rather not look because, I don't know, sometimes I think we're afraid of what we find, we might find. You know, I think that's a Mark Twain thing. Be careful what you ask for. Uh, you know, and, but in this, again, in this situation, I'm belaboring the issue. Um, the, the onus is on people in these environments to come up with these, with some mechanism of, of, of documenting what's being done. And if it's done in a systematic manner, I can tell you, and, and it shows a positive result, I can tell you that people are going to be knocking on the doors for you guys to come in because every hospital wants to decrease the length of stay. Every hospital wants a better discharge status. Everybody want, every hospital wants these things. Every patient wants these things. Every payer wants these things. Okay, are those the three Ps that Charles talked about? How do you do this? you think anecdotes are going to work? I don't think so. I think, Tony, I absolutely agree with you because in pulling the data, the data is not there. I mean, I did a length of study based on physical therapy interventions, and it didn't show that it decreased length of study, so, or length of stay. So, again, yes, I agree with you that maybe we're a little afraid of data right now because it's not going to show what we want it to show when we, we know that we impact that, and that's because we don't take the responsibility for saying that we're the ones that did that. So, again, I agree 100%, but model is not it. Like I said, it's a cog to a wheel. There's several different things there, but we, I believe that we need to put a model in place and that we need to get a partner. Charles and I have worked on some other things in the foundation that you have to get a partner. And then we have qualitative data because we did it at my hospital and we utilized it to then try to, to show the teamwork that did increase the satisfaction because I think customer satisfaction is a huge one that hospitals and patients and uh, um, payers look at as well. So it's, it's a process that is not there yet, but somebody has to be willing, somebody has to be willing to step outside that, that boat, put the model in place, and get a partner in the acute care facility, and then the data is going to start showing it as long as we say we're the ones that did that. Physical therapist has to stand up and say, I'm responsible for that, not sit back and, and go, okay, well, I'm glad you enjoyed it, but don't tell anybody because, you know, I'm really empathetic and I'm blue, and, you know, I like to do things, but I don't like recognition for it. You know, I'm, I'm sorry, that's a lot of our profession. Take the responsibility and, and take the acknowledgments along with that. I'd like to respond to this. Sure. Uh, Tim, if I wear out up here, you're welcome to come up and take my place because I think we share uh, a lot of sentiments on this, okay? But let me just answer some of your questions. There is data out there, and you perhaps don't think it's being collected, but it is being collected. And this might interest you. In California, for example, we have a consortium of hospitals that all subscribe to one particular agency who is collecting data on physical therapy and a lot of other things. And I have before me here a group of uh, 12 or 15 hospitals who are peer grouped in our area. And it would frighten you to look at this data. I did share it with Mark. I did share it with Andrew. And I did share it with uh, Ken Harwood, only so they could get a sense of what is being collected. And if a statistician were to sit down and review this data, he would come to the realization there's some of these places that aren't running too good, and there are other places that are running much better. And they could base this just on numbers without even knowing what the quality of care was. And I never like to get into this issue of quality because it's an amorphous thing. It's trying to get your arms around an amoeba, and, and you can't do that necessarily. I know the researchers tell me at some point in time we're going to be able to evaluate this and, and give you some concrete evidence that you can equate quality. But I don't like to argue things on this basis because I believe in the future 
if you don't understand what quality is, just look at the auto industry and you'll find out in a big hurry. And I think we're going to be finding that out soon if we don't do this. But conversely, the data that's being collected here is very, very interesting. What does it cost you to run your department? How many employees do you have? How many visits are you performing? What is your cost per service? And, you know, you can't mix apples and oranges. So when this thing was constructed, we were adamant about it, that it be constructed in a manner, what is a treatment? Is a treatment something that something happens when you walk in the door? Or is a treatment when you do all those little things you do to patients to, you know, compound and improve your charges? So you have to define that you're comparing apples and apples and not oranges and apples. And so this data is very, very important. And at some point in time, Tony and Andrew and I and Ken are going to sit down and look at this stuff. And we can take the time and say, maybe this is something that we can collect nationally and really come down to some realistics. Because anybody who doesn't think that... Efficiency isn't tied to quality, is dreaming. The two go hand in hand. And if you tell me that we have a therapist who can evaluate a patient, but it takes her a long time, it takes her about an hour to do this, I say that therapist, unfortunately, is incompetent. If it's going to take her an hour to do something, it should only take her a half hour. So don't judge quality on the basis of how long it takes you to do something, because pretty soon you'll become an imperfect perfectionist. Um, Amy Nordencraft, I'm from here in Denver. Could you hold the mic closer to you? Okay. I'd like to bring up two points. One of the first point about the student issues in acute care. Um, I think that, yes, we could do a better job in um, our teaching, but also one of the comments I get from the students who come back, and my students know that they better do vital signs, even if their clinical instructors don't do them. And those that are here hopefully are shaking their heads. You, 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 must, be, you must be part Italian because you're <laughs> oh, trying to keep the mic to, co close. Right here yeah, and be yeah, still. Please. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Um, but And one of the things I hear from the students is, well, it appears that um, the, the CIs are just doing these things. They're just doing these things to the, to the patients. Part of what I would challenge us, and I've been there on the CI side, is are we explaining to the students the thought process, the skill set that we are taking and saying, okay, this is why we're looking at this vital sign, this is what we're looking for, and I think that would help with some of the student issues, and I, I don't want that to be the whole thing, but that's just one, one point I wanted to bring up. The other I wanted to come back, Tony, to your point, how and who. I think that, yes, it is up to each of us that are clinicians to do that, but also I think one of the things that would help us is we partner with the schools to answer those questions. So we don't just say, okay, the clinician's doing this or maybe writing up a case study, but we as um, the faculty come back and say, okay, for this diagnosis, we are going to collect this data. Just like in the outpatient setting, all of you are not collecting the Oswestry on every single patient. You are collecting it on the appropriate patient. We have those outcome measures for our stroke population. We have outcome measures for the Parkinson's population. So why aren't we looking at the model for this patient? What is it that we need to be collecting for that patient? And if we did that, yes, there's going to be a lot of variation, but within the set of the appropriate patient, we have the tools. We need to start doing them. So I'm not saying why isn't it there? What's the one measure? I don't know. But we can do that. I want to bring up, do you need this? No, no, no. Okay. I, I'm, the music to my ears. Okay. The other is one of the things that we're doing here at the University of Colorado, we were approached, I was approached by a physician. We are looking at individuals with multi-organ system failure. And what we have done, and I want to say thank you to any of you in the acute care that, that did our survey. The physician is amazed. We got 500 responses for those of you in the acute care on what are you doing with these patients. So if you're here, thank you very much for answering the survey. And we are now at the point of looking at, 
at what are we as PTs doing with this population. And we're not just leaving it there with the qualitative. We plan to then take it to the next step and say, okay, what protocol is best for this population? So that, again, is the partnering that we need to do. And then looking at who's going to provide that. The other issue that I don't think we've really talked about, all of us have been paged on our lunch hour to get that patient back in bed because no one else can do it. Is that skilled? No. But are we able to say to the administrative, to the floor nurse, whoever it might be, that's not my job. That is not skilled. We have to stand up if we are going to be autonomous practitioners. So I think there's a lot of things that we need to do. I think the outcome tools are there, but we have to use our skill set, our knowledge, into applying them to the appropriate populations. They're there for almost, I mean, we can do the two-minute walk for our cardiopulmonary population. They are there. We just have to do them. I agree with you. Not only are they there, um, if our students can put these data sets together, uh, entry-level students, which, believe me, they have to do it. They don't graduate if they don't. If they can do it, I think you guys can do it. I don't have any doubts you can. Rita Shapiro, I've been listening and um, I've had many thoughts in what, I, what it comes to me, you know, something very, very passionate within me, is that our clinical affiliations are not adequate. From what I see from students coming into the acute care facilities, I've worked in different settings throughout my career, and uh, I'm finding that we're not really asking our students or are we not offering them the opportunity to be in acute care settings enough so they can learn what acute care is all about? Why can we not adopt the model where, you know, physical therapy students are working similar as, I don't want to use that word the way medical field does, but medical colleagues, we need to learn from them. They made a space for themselves in, in the, you know, um, medical arena, in, in the healthcare arena. We need to adopt that similar model. Why can we not do that? Why can we not send our students on like two, three hours a day to a clinical setting every day, five days a week, so they can see what's going on. They can get it right from the get-go, right from the second year onwards. And they can start to collect data. We can, you know, and who was that gentleman back there made a comment, we are the you know, the hub, all physical therapists. We need to be educators also, not just, um, you know, clinicians, okay, I'm practicing and, and I, I don't, I'm not on a faculty, so I don't have responsibility. So that's one factor comment I have. And then the second comment I you have. one comment at a time because we're going to make okay. it a debate. No, um, I, I don't think there's any doubt that there's a lot of room for improvement of clinical education in all of our academic programs. And whether or not it's going to be worth it to implement some of these issues that you're talking about uh, sort of depends upon whether or not we think this is the right limiting factor. If we think the student exposure is the, is the reason for the problem, well, obviously, student exposure can be changed very easily. I think the problem is deeper than student exposure, though. I really do. I think that keeping a student in a situation that where a lot of unskilled care is going on for a longer period of time is not going to improve the situation. Okay. What do you uh, foresee the problem is? What do I, for I foresee the yeah. problem as being um, many environments, and, and again, I don't know how many, but, and I don't even know a percentage, but I perceive there to be a lot of environments where the majority of time unskilled care is being delivered in an, in an acute care setting. 
and, I, and obviously it, it's not every environment. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to change that. Uh, and I don't think that exposing a student for a longer period of time in those environments are the way to change it. Instead, I think what is happening is our students are the conduit to get this information back to us. I mean, that's what's happening. And, and if you look further into the situation, you start to realize that so are, former, so are therapists who formerly worked in those settings when they tell us why they leave the settings. They're the reason. And, and I think that gets us back to the crux of the issue. What, what happened to the, the rounds, the, the grand rounds? And, the, the, you know, there you have a clinician, a physical therapist, taking his, her students on rounds to, to see, okay. And there's teaching going on all the time. Why isn't that happening anymore? I, I have no idea. I have no idea what happened to that. I, 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 don't, I don't know if anybody, maybe a subsequent person coming to the mic can answer that. Okay, and the second comment that I had was uh, with regards to your comment about data. Yes, there is adequate data being collected. Look at our acute burn care unit. If physical therapists are not there, we're not going to get the better outcomes that we are getting today. How, how do I know that? How do you know that? Because it's been published many, many, many times. That's when physical therapists are not there, there's a worse outcome than when they are there? No, when the physical therapists are there, what the outcome is, the stays are shorter and the, the movements are better. Shorter than when they're not there? Okay, then take physical therapists out. No, That's I, the no. only way you're going to find out. You know, you're talking about the randomized study. Okay, then take it away. It does not have to be that, that you deprive somebody of a care to demonstrate. But you, there is plenty of... Uh, data available where the care is not there. I guess I'm just not aware of that data. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much. Good morning. Laura Sage, first time caller, long time listener. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of thinking goes on when you're standing in the line here. So. I am a lead physical therapist at Longmont United Hospital up the road here in Colorado. I'm also the uh, very active member of our local clinical educators forum. And to follow up on what Amy said from CU, I think the clinical educators forum, or I think in New England it's called a consortium, uh, where you have a meeting of clinical educators and uh, uh, academics is where you're going to have the uh, best win-win of what's happening with the students, what's happening in in each setting. But also, my mission when I came to this um, conference was I need to come up with topics for next year's Clinical Educators Forum. I think outcomes is uh, top of the list. And we need to come up with how are we going to do it, how, who's going to do it, and uh, first of all, I want to thank you for answering one of my questions. What am I going to do next year? It's, it's outcomes, and, and um, Mr. Magistro, what you said, it's work. It sounds like we have to roll up our sleeves and do it, but um, I, I think we can. So I, I'd like to uh, encourage people, if, if your local areas have any kind of clinical education meeting with um, uh, academics, uh, I think that's, I think something is in place. To, to, to take it to the next step. Uh, the other thought I had, did you want to comment on that? I, I have no comment. Okay. The other thought I had was uh, another follow-up. Uh, someone talked about advocating for a patient who needed therapy on the weekend, and obviously we had just had a very small bit of information, but it sounded like passive range of motion was a big reason. 
I would like to know why someone else wasn't taught how to do that. To me, the skilled care is instructing other staff or family members in how to do the care. Uh, and I, I would challenge therapists to act in that respect where educators, not just uh, providers of care. Um, and the, the leap that leads to my last comment was actually a question. I talked about relationships that therapists have with their employers. If we were to word it as therapists having privileges in hospitals, what would that look like? instead of being employers, if we had doctors of physical therapy having privileges to practice in the hospital, would that change how people look at us? That would depend to a great deal. It would be an ideal situation, and I like the concept, but I think it would have a great deal to do how the AHA would listen to this uh, discussion and think about the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Hospitals and, and what their role in this might be. You must remember that in 1955, the same organization of ours was fighting for survival to stay in hospitals because at that point in time, PM&R came up and said to be the director of a hospital uh, in uh, an acute care setting, you had to be a physiatrist. And the department had to be called Department of Physical Medicine, not Physical Therapy. So we survived that. And, uh, but to have privileges in hospitals, is, it's another word. It's like attacking another thing at the end of your name that you have a privilege to practice. In our hospital setting, we have that relationship. We can have lunch in the doctor's room if we want it. We can have uh, do anything that we want there because we are established and people respect what we do and we are really truly in a collegial level. And that's that's the amazing thing about it. You don't need another degree or pedigree at the end of your name. Uh, so the point I'm making is that that this privileges would be an ideal way to approach the problem. But remember, privileges are beset with responsibilities as well. So keep that in mind as you think about it. But I think it's an avenue. I think uh, uh, I'd like to pick up on what Charles said last, which is um, how would you make the case for privileges? And, and that would be the key component. I think that's a logical follow-up to us calling ourselves doctors of physical therapy. Well, and, and autonomous practice. I think that might work for some people in this room, but it doesn't necessarily, it may not necessarily work for the people you're asking privileges from. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Hello, I'm Juliette Alanac. I'm a physical therapist in Fort Worth, Texas, and I've been doing acute care almost exclusively for 13 years. Um, I work in a trauma center, um, and I would say I probably feel, fall right in the middle of the road. Um, I'll start with the clinical education piece that Debbie, I guess, was talking about at the very beginning that I do feel when our students do come into the acute care setting that we get a lot of the deer in the headlights look of, oh my goodness, you do that. Um, and so it's the feeling of something is missing in the link between being in the classroom and then coming into the clinic setting. I don't know what it is because I don't teach in the, in the, in the schools, but there, feels, there seems like there's a little missing piece. But I would challenge Debbie and other therapists out there that when our students leave, they're doing the whole piece of the puzzle. I expect that when they leave our setting that they are able to go and practice in an entry-level position. And that means doing the calls and getting the equipment and identifying who's going to be caring for the patient. And all the pieces in the puzzle that I do on a daily basis, I expect my students to be doing as well. So if you're not doing that and you're letting them do the technical piece of the puzzle, then they're missing the big component of what we do on a daily basis. Um, next, I like to talk about length of stay. That's been talked about a little bit. Okay. 
I, th I think we've, we've overly focused this debate on clinical education. I, I truly do. I, I don't think the issue is clinical education. I really don't. Um, I, I, I do think there are problems with clinical education. I, I don't have any doubt you can take students from wherever they are, the deer in the headlights, to a point where they're comfortable where you are, where you are in your setting. Um, I don't know if your setting is such that, and again, I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to belittle your setting. I don't know where you are in that spectrum. If on the spectrum you are at a, at a, at a level of uh, they feel comfortable and, they, and they're, they're still doing the majority of unskilled care, but they feel more comfortable with it now because they're comfortable with the tubes, they're comfortable with the environment, they're comfortable knowing what floor they're going on and everything else, I'm not that excited. <laughs> All you've done is, you know, you've, you've succeeded in, in contributing to the dumbing down of the field, I guess is the kind of thing, okay? And I'm being, I'm being, I'm being deliberately harsh here, okay? Um, and, and not necessarily, it's not personal, you know. Now, if you are on the spectrum of, on the other end, where you've taken this deer in the headlights person, and you've taken the person to be very comfortable and very competent and doing cost-effective care with high skill and everything else, which I sure, I, I, I'm sure that's what you're doing, then you've exposed another problem in our system, which is the lack of preparedness of the students in, in, you know, in, in getting to your setting. And somebody mentioned it earlier. Their solution to the problem is not to, is not to take students until they're at the end of the, of, the, of the internship. That's not a solution, guys. Sorry. That might solve your problem. But what you've done is you've allowed the academic program to get away with murder and, and just schlop that student off to you, right? And you're carrying the burden of taking the student to make them, quote, unquote, comfortable. I don't know about competent and cost-effective. Again, that's, the jury's still out on that. I would like to use the word competent more than comfortable um, in our setting. But... Um, we all would. The part, the part. We all would, but you have to. But, I, but my question back to you is, how do I know that? How would I know it? Well, I guess you would go with what we're currently using for the students is whatever their manual is that happens to come into our setting. That would you judge a practicing clinician on that manual? I rest my case. I don't know. <laughs> but that's the only tool that's out there for us to use currently. Well, but, the part, the part where I fall in the middle here is the, the deciding of then the I think skill. I another tool. Okay. Um, is the point deciding between the skilled and unskilled care. Because the part I completely agree with is I would say probably 40 to 50% of my day is determining who is that skilled care. Is the patients of the 18 to 20 that are on my schedule to see is determining who are the ones that I truly need to be seeing. Because the only way I'm getting to them is by the doctor writing the order, PT evaluate. I, I would repeat. How would I know that? How would I know that's what you're doing and how, and, and that's what you're contributing to the environment? I understand. We've already made the point that, there, that the, the literature isn't there. So, but then quickly about length of stay, because the literature is not there about length of stay, because I did a recent lip search on that, um, trying to determine, you know, we have X number of staff, we have X number of patients that the doctors want us to cover on now seven days a week. Well, it's not possible. It's not possible to see that number of patients with the number of therapists that we have. So the list search was done on six. Why, why is that the case? Why is it the case? Because most please. of us don't want to be working six days a week. The hospital isn't going to pay us to work six days a week. Therein lies the problem. Why wouldn't they want it? I mean, it would seem to me like I'm going to let... The hospital doesn't want us to work six days a no, week? No, why wouldn't they not want to hire more people? Oh, we'd love to hire more people. If anybody wants to come to Fort Worth, please let me know. We don't have, I mean, we just don't have the staff available. 
But part, the part of that link to say is that, the, no, the lid search is not out there. And actually, we when we went to seven-day-a-week coverage for our orthopedic patients several years ago, we did our own little study, unpublished, unknown to anyone. But it actually demonstrated that the length of stay went up, as did the cost. So when, when we took our orthopedic patients from six days to seven-day-a-week coverage, so the length of stay went up and the cost went up with it. So if we're trying to say increasing PT coverage decreases that, we couldn't say that based on our little study that we did. Well, you're in a, you're in a situation where you have to be careful what you ask for because you get it. If you trust the information you're getting, I think you have to make a, make a decision. The decision, as I would see it, is not to go back to six-day-week coverage. The decision I would try to think about is, you know, what. well, I, I think... It's an issue of how you deal with the data, and, and I want to make a. Uh, I, I'd like to make a, a final point here, and that's that um, I admire the, ca- the fact that you collect the information and you get the information. That's that's key because I, I hear too many people saying to me, "Well, where is it in the literature, guys? It's not going to be in the literature. It's not. You know, most of the time, it's not going to be there. Now, it may be, and when it is, we should look and see if it's pertinent to us." I think the onus is going to be on us to get this data ourselves. To get, and it's not a necessarily a research project. It's simply a quality improvement initiative. That's all it is. And, and as directors of these clinics, isn't that one of your responsibilities? And I would ask you, I would ask you very simply, what are you doing for that now? I know what you're doing. You're looking at charts. You're, making, you're checking off lists. There are the goals there. Is this there? Is that there? Is that really quality improvement? Sorry. I mean, from my perspective, I would do away with that stuff, and I would put something in place where I could count on the information and count on the data. My name is Patty Sheets from Urbana, Illinois, and um, I work in a situation where I'm thinking about this. It would solve my staffing problems if we were out of acute care, but if I had a family member in the hospital, I would at least want them to get out of bed. So um, I, I think that... Um, one of the challenges that we face, at least that I face with my staff every day, in trying to help them focus on what we consider to be the more skilled aspects of care is that I think as a profession we are very socialized toward believing that treatment is the most important thing that we do. I don't think that's just in acute care. I think it's broader than that. But in particularly in acute care, um, at least this is what I see with my staff, is they're so concerned about treating every patient who comes before them, all of whom who have some death. And, and trying to help them sort out what are the deficits that could be res- that really need um, perhaps just generalized mobility that could be done by a non-skilled person, and for them to see their role as the person who sits on top of the person who's supposed to do those things and to monitor those programs and to put those programs in place, as opposed to being the person who implements all of those programs, has been a great challenge. And it and it continually comes up to again their perception as a professional that they're not doing their job unless they're treating all patients as opposed to examining patients, screening for people who need their skilled services, making a diagnosis for those people who need skilled services, and then kind of working down that way. So my thought would be is if we could come to some sort of an ideas about what are the most critical things that you have to do in each encounter in an acute care um, uh, experience. You know, my kind of view is is that um, some people need skilled treatments from us. Many people don't, but many people need us to be doing other things with other people to see to it that they get basic needs met. I uh, would believe that one of the more important roles that physical therapists must play today in the hospital environment and the healthcare environment we're in today 
the reason why I believe that a physical therapist should be on the staff of every hospital department in this country, and remember that the majority of these hospitals are under 100 beds, okay? Keep that in mind. Uh, that person should be there for one reason. Any patient that hits that hospital door that falls under the DRG guidelines should be evaluated by a competent physical therapist, one who does nothing but that, if you wish, to make a decision as to what happens to this patient. If he obviously is ambulating at home, he doesn't need assistance in ambulation, but if he can't do other things that he's required to do, that's where the skilled services come in. And when that person has been in that position and done it well, her attitudes or his attitudes will be appreciated a great deal for what he gives and lends to the patient. The other thing Tony brought up that I think must be answered, there has been a dumbing down of the profession. And this bothers me a great deal. I see too many people these days in sweatshirts and sweatpants, and I don't know what they're doing or where they're doing it, but it reminds me of the more esoteric dermatologist who I see walking around in very fancy uh, tunics that display many of their attributes. But, we, you know, we, we at one time... Uh, we at one time uh, were in a position that, as Kay Shepard was saying yesterday, and I, because I'm an old man now, I don't like to inflict old ideas on young minds. But conversely, we have to get back to a more professional level of what we're doing. I look at pictures in our magazines these days, and I was one of the most staunch disbelievers of the patch. I wouldn't wear one when I got out of school, okay? It was too demeaning to me to put a patch on my shoulder and say I'm a physical therapist. It's somewhat analogous to a doctor who walks around the hospital with a stethoscope around his neck. We know you're a doctor. You don't need to do that. So keep in mind that this dumbing down of the profession, may you may think it's helping us, but in some ways it's being harmful to us because it's taking us out of an element we should be very adamantly involved in. My name is Grace. I uh, work in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. Right now I work in skilled care, but I worked for 20 years uh, out of my 29 years as a physical therapist in acute care. Um, I want to hopefully uh, spur a little bit more debate. Um, I think right now we're in a part that we do need to really look at acute care, and there is some aspects of acute care that we probably don't need to be involved in. And we've kind of touched into that from being seen as the person that gets that person out of bed. And we have to address this. And I think we need to really look at our departments and maybe we don't need as many physical therapists in acute care as what there is right now. But what's happening is that too many of our orders are being for really just getting people out of bed, that we don't have time. I, I don't know, I can't remember what physical therapist was talking about, my 18 to 20 patients on the caseload. When you do have that, you don't have the time to really do the skilled care that we do so well, but we don't. Um, I spent uh, just recently within the last five years, a couple of years, at a large uh, medical center. And I was appalled when I first came on board. I was thinking, gosh, I'm going to be working in this medical center and we'll see phenomenal things done by the PTs. I was sadly disappointed. It was they were relegated more to um, getting people out of bed. And I started to educate our nurses about what physical therapy can do. And they were amazed. You guys know that? I didn't know you, you guys did that. And I think what happened is that I had the fortune to be a physical therapist even before DRGs. And at that time, we were um, a revenue for the hospital. So why have a nurse get the patient out of bed? Let's have that physical therapist get that patient out of bed, and we can charge it. 
Unfortunately, when DRG came on board, we didn't change with that. We didn't change and really took a look. And what I've been hearing, too, I think we got scared because we figured all of a sudden we are an expense. Well, how can we convince that we're still okay? Well, what we convinced them was we can reduce length of stay. That's how I can justify being here is I can reduce length of stay. But we still continued on with getting people out of bed. Um, we failed to really take a look. Um, I don't see a lot of times in acute care of doing a lot of um, assessment um, and teaching, especially in uh, lungs, uh, teaching breathing techniques, uh, teaching posture. Uh, and we think, oh, the respiratory therapist is doing that. They're not doing it. Uh, there's a big aspect of care that we're not doing uh, in acute care. I think, um, and that was one of the things I think we need to kind of re redo our departments, educate the people, uh, the nurses, uh, the administrators, and be willing to say this is what we can do and, and this is what outcomes we can accomplish, but we need to pull out of some of these other stuff uh, of thinking that we're just here to uh, get people out of bed, get people into bed for that first time. I don't think, you know, a, a person, and I tell this to my therapist also, keep in mind this patient two weeks, a week ago, was at a mall shopping and getting out of bed. He just had pneumonia, you know. Uh, he might have other issues. Um, I, I do think there is a need for the physical therapist. Is I always tell people in acute care, it's a triage. And what we're doing is really taking a look. We're not going through that whole process, but we are evaluating what's going to be that next step. Can they go home? Do they need to go to skilled care? Do they need to have home health? Uh, and that's one of the things that, that we do. Um, and then lastly, uh, I wanted uh, to discuss on uh, the changes they're saying, well, I do all this assessment. That's the reason why the student didn't see that. It was more than just the walking. Then I challenge is that, you know, are we documenting those changes? Are we documenting what we are doing? Are we, if we truly are assessing, then we should be uh, documenting what we are assessing for that. Um, and then we need to communicate those responses to the right people. If a doctor added a new cardiac med, uh, what was the response to uh, when I worked with that patient? Did it do the intended thing? And that should be when we're working in that acute care setting. It's a lot of times it's that uh, those changes um, medically that happen, and then what is the response to that function here? And I think those are all my comments. <laughs> I think I'd like to interject another thought into this for a minute because we're talking about length of stay and I think it has some real uh, things to think about as far as our discussion today. We've all heard about the 75% rule and I'm sure you know what that means for, in, for outpatient rehab or inpatient rehab facilities. And uh, earlier in my remarks I said something about technology uh, driving health care. Uh, do you know how long a total hip stays in the hospital these days? We have surgeons in our area at Sentinel Hospital, a guy by the name of Dorr, who does his hips in the morning and they go home in the afternoon, walking, full weight bearing. Okay, what's the 75% rule going to do to this whole system of things? And compound that, if you will, with the technologies that are coming downstream, and you will get some impressions of what's happening in the real world of healthcare. It's going to change. It's going to change dramatically. And we as physical therapists have to change with it. And technology is going to drive it even further. So I hope that we keep this in mind in terms of what we're discussing. There is still not a good bridge between hospital and home. It doesn't exist yet. 
and it's not the TCU necessarily, it's not the SNF necessarily, but that that organizational structure has to still be devised and compensated for because when it is, we're going to have a much better system of healthcare going. I, I'm going to um, try to be. We have about uh, 25 minutes, so I'm going to be a little provocative here. Hopefully, um, we've heard shortages. We've heard uh, we've heard about shortages of PTs. Um, we have a lot of schools that operate at a, what I would say a marginal capacity. Um, you know, I think the average class size is in the 30s. We have 200 schools with an average class size in the 30s. Um, I think we have um, uh, we have to ask ourselves very very very. And we have an applicant pool problem, in spite of the fact that a lot of people don't think we have a problem. I think those people, personally, I think those people are burying their heads in the sand. I think we all, we, we have seen a decrease in the applicants. My, my point here is that it looks like, from the keynote we heard before this conference even started, there's going to be a shortage of physical therapists in the, in the near future. We can't put physical therapists out in places where they're needed. We just heard someone talk earlier about there's work there, but they can't put PTs there. Are we, how are we going to solve this problem? My, my point here to consider is maybe we need to get out of some environments and put ourselves in those environments where we have a big impact, especially if we can't show that the impact we have in certain environments is very high. I'm going to leave that alone right now. We'll go with that. Tony, I'm back. <laughs> I started, and, and um, after listening to this, I think it's been a very interesting um, debate. Um, I have a few thoughts that, to clarify what I said in the beginning. Um, you, Tony, you had said that there are um, affiliations where unskilled care is being um, delivered and that it makes no sense to, to extend those affiliations. I agree completely with that, and I believe that unskilled care is being given in environments where the need for skilled care exists, but the provision of unskilled care is the path of least resistance. And I think it is incumbent on those who are in those facilities, every physical therapist in a facility where unskilled care is the norm. They need to step up to the plate, take the hits, and defend our profession and speak on behalf of the patient because the uh, patients are being underserved. How likely is that to happen and what do we have to do to get that to happen? I think we have to continue in our training of our new physical therapists that they are, um, they are the advocates for the patient okay, and the so advocates we have for their profession. We have change agents. I mean, Correct. That's one, mm -hmm. one approach. What do we do about the the people that are there doing this. What do I do with that? I think, one, the schools, and I, and I understand the dilemma that the schools are in and that you have limited opportunities. I'm not, interested in, the, I'm not interested in the schools continuing education programs. I'm not interested in that. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in the patients that are in this situation that are getting shortchanged. That's who I'm interested in. Then I believe it's the um, community physical therapist to help mentor their colleagues in these facilities that are providing substandard care. I think there, you, the problem is, is you still have some of the old guard that's out in these practices who came in under the more technical model of delivery, who have not advanced themselves, nor are they in an environment that will allow them to advance themselves without a lot of um, sacrifice. Do you think as a profession we're prepared to police ourselves? No. Why? Not adequately. I think we, we have such a diversity in the standard of care, in the range of skill sets of the physical therapist in our community as a whole. And I think you have everything from the technical physical therapist who does what the doctor says to the physical therapist who is an autonomous pr um, practitioner. And until that is more 
um, solidified that we are all in the autonomous practitioner range, it's going to be very difficult. This is a cart in front of the horse or the horse in front of the cart issue. I think as you see it, we need to change the practice and then we can go in and change the practice. <laughs> and, and I'm saying it's never, it's never going to happen <laughs> unless something else. You know, I, I, I use this uh, talk, I use this in a talk a lot, and um, uh, it's a quote that my father gave me a long, a long time ago uh, when I got back when I was working on the railroad. And he said, uh, there are two reasons why people do things. Something real good is going to happen to them if they do it, or something yeah. real bad is going to happen to them if they don't do it. Now, I, you know, we're, we've, talked, we've had discussions, in fact, the previous Rothstein debate was paid for performance. Mm -hmm. um, I believe that as a profession, we have an onus to change practice where we know mm -hmm. practice is being su is substandard. I think, but knowing this exists and then not doing anything about it, what do you think that does for us? Mm -hmm. This no, is why I'm here. This is why I took the position I took. I agree completely. And you know, after acute care, we can go take on any other environment you guys mm -hmm. want to. Yeah. I'm ready. You know, Charles told me, you know, we can't let some of these other places get away. Who are getting away with murder? Keep getting away with murder, right. because that's what it is, guys. Apathy does exist, and I believe that there are apathetic physical therapists practicing throughout the United States that are setting up these environments. And you are correct, it has to change, but how do you eat an elephant? You eat them one bite at a time. And I, I don't think you're going to be able to have sweeping, massive change, but it, it, if good physical therapists take jobs in these environments, they need to be the change agent in those environments to move it forward. Well, let's turn it around just for a second, because I appreciated your early comments. I wish I could have remembered all of them, but a lot has transpired. <laughs> yes. I think I'm liking more and more what you're saying now than I did previously, but that's me. <laughs> but conversely, let's look at this situation just a little more carefully. When we think about the, the element that you're bringing now to the table, uh, you said a lot of things are being done there by the old guard like they used to do them. Well, you know, I, I take exceptions to that. Uh, oh, I'm an old guard, too. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. But uh, the reason I take exceptions to it is because I think the old guard's departure from these hospital settings has been the cause of the problem, okay? Number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, look at the dilemma the schools are in. You say, well, we won't send our students there. Cappy says you have to send mm -hmm. your students someplace, don't they? Mm -hmm. So what's happened? Since I left school, I told you there were... 21 programs in the country. Tony, are there over 200 now? So where are you going to send all these mm -hmm. kids? So the areas you're going to send them are inferior. They're not up to the quality that you expect. So what is the next logical step? The academia and the clinicians have to get together and marry one another. Mm -hmm. Okay? Yes. It's a difficult marriage. Okay? But they have to do it. Because until academia is willing to say, we're going to marry you guys and you're going to marry us, this problem will never be resolved. And when you marry, what you're going to do is you're spending as much time on the accreditation of your clinical programs as you do with your educational programs. Absolutely. And the discordant there is tremendous, okay? And until that happens, you're not going to assure anything because when you get dragged into court on a malpractice case and you're dragged in there because they'll ask you the first thing, are you trained by education, practice, and service to do what you're doing? And you, they, you will say yes, of course, and they'll say, well, who accredited you with respect to your clinical skills? Who did that? And then what are you going to give them for an answer? So that's, that's going to be the answer at some point in time when you people decide to get married. And please invite us to the wedding. <laughs> Thank you.
Um, the only other uh, comment uh, that I'd like to make is regarding outcome measurements, and it dawned on me as I was listening to this that there is published literature out there on the benefits of physical therapy in the acute care setting. However, because physical therapy in acute care is a team effort and it's very interdisciplinary if it's done correctly, a lot of the work is done with outcome measurements that involve more than our practice and are found in areas that are not unique to physical therapy. When you look at outcome measures, you need to be looking at things not only length of stay, but length of stay with discharge destination. So the percent of patients who are able to be discharged to home. You need to look at reduction in complications, functional mobility at discharge, specific objective measurements such as range of motion for total knee patients, identification of complications by therapists. I think um, the young lady behind me talked about doing differential diagnosis and identifying complications, and the establishment of successful home programs for patients when they leave our center. I think most of what you just listed are done with our students. Our students do this. So I don't know what the I don't know what the barrier is. I don't know what the barrier is. I don't know why you don't know this. About, and you know what else our students do? We make them we make them do these this. Well, some what you people tell us. Okay, you people in the acute care settings. What you're telling us is a very important thing you do is determine or have a say in discharge status. Mm-hmm. It seemed to me that the other thing you're saying in the, in the same breath is we've got to do it quickly. Well, then I think a good outcome measure of our students' ability in that setting is how often are they accurate with that judgment? Yes. In fact, that might be the the most important measure that we have for our student. And when our students are as accurate as you are who are practicing, or as we've shown in some of our environments, more accurate Mm -hmm. than the practicing clinicians, okay, or, or better at adhering to a process than practicing clinicians, then I think I feel pretty good about my program when that happens. Mm-hmm. My point here is not to brag about my program. My point here is to say if our students can do it, what's wrong with us? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's my point. Thank you. I'm going to pass. Just as a res- I have a lot of little responses. Um, first, professionalism would take care of the questions that you asked the lady in front of me. People who have professionalism will strive to do better, to always be dynamic and change. Also, we do have measures for how students feel about clinicals. It's the student portion of the CPI where they're allowed to give feedback to the um, clinicians, and we ask our students to be as honest as possible so we can make change within our hospital. Um, Having the last affiliation, it's not so much for – I don't have a problem with students going to acute care setting, but in our setting we see people in groups. Um, It's a communal culture. They see everybody in a gym, so it can get chaotic. It's very fast-paced, so we want to make sure for the patient's safety as well as for the student's education. I always tell students that they're here to learn. They're not here to be slave labor. So... um, and I have used the CPI on a practicing licensed physical therapist to say where I would expect them to be. And this is the standard that APTA uses to measure students, and they should be the same. Okay. I'm sorry to cut people off who've been standing patiently in line, but uh, it's 5 of 11, and we do want to give you a chance to get to um, other sessions. Uh, I want to thank, first of all, our speakers for uh, engaging us in this provocative conversation. So let's go ahead and do that. The second thing, thank you. Um, one of the things that the group of us in planning this discussed is what would we do in case nobody stood up at the mic. And I'm happy to say that none of the backup plans we had in place uh, needed to be utilized. So you all, you all did exactly what we hoped we would do. Um, the last thing I would say is that I opened by telling you that I cut my teeth in acute care, and it is my um, first love. But, you know, the reality is that there is no free lunch out there. We have cost issues. We have um, resource issues. We, not just us, not just physical therapy, patients, hospitals, etc. And 
if this conversation stays in this room and doesn't move outside this room, we'll never come to grips with those issues. So really, from my standpoint, your job is to go home and take this debate with you and engage it in whatever way that you can, because um, we haven't resolved it. Um, we don't know whether we still really belong there or not. Um, we haven't successfully resolved this debate, um, and that work really has to take place where you are. So thank you very much again for your participation. Thank you. Thank you. Listening to Dion Jewell's charge at the end of this debate, she said, take this debate with you home. I think when we look at what's happened in the intensive care unit and the acute care setting and this whole concept of critical illness, all has really risen to the top since 2007. And so practice has changed Regardless of whether or not this debate was taken with us, practice has changed. Physical therapist's role is really clear. I think what was taken home was the challenge to document it, to look at research, to really, really begin to demonstrate whether or not physical therapists make a difference. And so I thank the investigators who took that charge forward. And in closing, I am so excited, as many of you who have listened to the Cast for the December and February issues of the journal know about the critical illness, special issues, the research that's going on. Keep on doing it. This is such an exciting time. 